We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. For boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit winbet.com. That's W-H-N-N-Bet.com to start winning. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always my co-host Nick Pilato. It's Sunday night, 11 o'clock here on the East Coast, and we've had some time now to digest this draft. We've had over 24 hours since the end of the draft. Giants, I think their last pick was in the 4 o'clock range yesterday on Sunday. or I'm sorry, on Saturday. So there's been some time. What we wanted to do here on this specific podcast was take a 30,000-foot view of the Giants draft class their draft process under Joe Shane in his first year, and the overall feel of what's going on. Talk concepts like what they did with the offensive line. Talk concepts like what they did going away from the consensus big board and drafting a lot of players who, you know, were considered, quote-unquote, we don't call them this, and we'll explain why, but quote-unquote reaches. We're going to talk a little bit about what this draft means for players who, at one point, at least last year, were considered linchpins of the team. Daniel Jones, Kenny Galladay, James Bradbury, players like that. We're going to talk a little bit about specifics, such as the offensive line and what they did there and the bulk of what they did there. Things like blocking schemes as they move forward and did that change at all. Things like how the Giants drafted all Power 5 players. What does that mean? What can we take away from that? And things of that nature. So that's what this podcast is going to be about. A general draft overview, 30,000-foot view. Then, just to preview things, we're going to end this podcast with a little Giants draft trivia that I came up with. I'm going to make Nick guess. And I'm guessing right now he gets at least one right, but I did make these pretty damn hard. So I really won't blame him at all if he doesn't get any of these right. Though I do expect him to get one right because I would have gotten one right if these questions were asked to me. And that's what I'll leave this at. And if he can beat that, then he's just the man. And then this week, just to give you a little preview of what's to come, we have a very special guest coming on the show tomorrow. Won't announce who that is. I'll let it be a surprise. That'll drop tomorrow in the early evening. So be on the lookout for that. I think you all are going to enjoy that. Then this week, we're going to do a deeper dive into all of the picks. We're going to do individual pods on a lot of these guys after watching the tape and coming up with kind of a profile for 
how they might fit the Giants in year one, how might they fit the Giants in year two, and so on and so forth. How do they fit the roster right now, the scheme, everything like that. So that's coming up this week, player by player. We're also going to do what we did last year, a little bit of review of the NFC East drafts, how the Cowboys do, how the Eagles do, how the, how the football team do. And I'm still calling them that because I just refuse to call them commanders until further notice, until I'm legitimately forced to call them that. I won't call them anything but I the football team or the, I'm not going to say the other one. And then finally we'll do a review of just the NFL drafts as a whole. You know, who what were some of the best picks, the worst or Sue, who, who had the best drafts, the worst drafts, where did the giants fit into all of that. And obviously some more stuff too, that we haven't, you know, we're going to pr- hopefully try to get some draft guests on too to kind of re- review the draft. So a lot of things going around in my mind right now, things I want to do, things I want to talk about, hopefully things you guys will enjoy. The buck doesn't stop the end of the draft as they say nick we continue rolling on here in the big blue bander podcast so after that long preamble let me ask you my friend did you get a chance to get any sleep and how are you doing today dude i did get some sleep but it wasn't as much as i probably would have liked during the draft those those first couple days like it's like three four hours a night i'm just up all night tweeting and and looking into these players that i did not know maybe as much as i would have liked because they were a little bit off the beaten path but man, I'm uh, I'm happy that it's over. I'm happy that we have our guys, and I'm excited to kind of really dive into the nitty gritty film of the players who are now New York Giants. Yeah, I don't blame you. I'm excited about it too. And let's start there. Let's start with kind of an overview of what went down in this draft. The Giants in this draft class did a lot of things. They first they stood at five and seven with the picks they had, and they took who they considered were the best players on the board. Two of the six players they coveted. Then when day two got there, they had a plan and they executed it. And that plan involved trading back. So in the end here, they ended up with a really diverse class here with a lot of different players at a lot of different positions, some of whom will contribute now, some of whom might contribute later. We'll get to that in the podcast. But overall, now that you've had some time to digest their class, how are you feeling about this first Joe Shane uh, draft class? Well, I think it was really... uh... Star heavy at top with Kayvon Thibodeau, Evan Neal. That's what you expect when you have two top 10 picks. And I feel like a lot of the other guys are the right culture fit. And they are developmental pieces that are going to really hit their stride in year two and through the rest of their rookie contract. Some are going to be practice squad developmental type guys from the guys on the back end of the roster. But I do feel like they found players that they have specific plans for. That's what you would hope every NFL team does. I don't really think... That necessarily happens, though. We know that there's a real plan for Wandell Robinson out of Kentucky. He's an outlier in a lot of different ways that put him kind of in a negative light. I'm trusting the fact that Dable and Joe Shane have a real plan on how to utilize his skill set with Kadarius Tony on the roster. And then I think a lot of these other individuals that we will be going over extensively on future podcasts won't be forced to play unless injuries really happen yeah, for sure. Even somebody like Azuda, who was their fourth player drafted, he may see fewer snaps than a lot of the guys they took after him, with the exception of maybe Bellinger. But, you know, there's guys on that defense who can fit into these different sub packages. Remember, we're going to see this crazy Wink Martindale defense and cra- crazy is not a good word for it. Let's just call it multiple versatile. That's what it's going to be. There's going to be a lot of different players subbing in for different sub packages. And that I think will not only keep them fresh, it'll give them necessary experience to help them grow within this system, actual live reps, not just the stuff they do in practice without the pad, you know, not without the pads, but without the actual bullets flying, as they say, which is not, 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 I don't like that. That's one of the, uh, you know, the sayings, but it is what it is. And it's the first one that came to mind here, Nick, but as far as how I feel now, having digested this thing a little bit more and had some time to really look into it, I'll say this. I feel really good about this class, and I don't know if 
I want to. I wonder if that's being disgenuine to or ingenuine to something like you know how I felt with Dave Get- during the Dave Gettleman days. But I'll say this: the Dave Gettleman days, with the exception of two picks, Saquon Barkley and Daniel Jones, and even to some extent, the Saquon Barkley pick was not full like. For us, like for people like us, we understood how bad of a pick it was going to be and how bad of a pick it was. But he was still probably mocked to go. And his, as far as his big consent, big board consensus went, right? Not even Let's not even put the mocks into this because I hate when, you know, people are saying, oh, well, he was mocked. He was mocked there. The mocks aren't as important as like the big boards, right? The consensus, all the analysts who get together and watch the tape and then the, the what their big boards look like. And even so, Barkley was like around, you know, probably still in the, uh, I would imagine. I don't remember back then, Nick. Maybe you do. I would imagine he was still like a top. 15 top 20 maybe even top 10 big board player obviously daniel jones was not he was a top five five. oh yeah he was definitely but a lot of those big boards aren't necessarily about position value it's more about skill set yeah i think that's fair and then that that kind of gives me pause on the whole is there even value in looking at these big board type things but i I, we won't do that because we're going to talk a little about that later in in another discussion but i think there is still value because i don't think it's totally just i i I think you know because look you're right. I think that doesn't fully account for positional value, but to some extent it does. Like they're not putting they're not up there putting like punters up. Like Matt Ariza wasn't wasn't up there, you know. That that has to account for some kind of position value, but I guess he is a special teamer only, so it doesn't really make sense. Whatever. The point being, with the exception of those two picks, Dave Gettleman never had these quote unquote reach picks. If we really look back, there are a lot of quote unquote and, and I'll throw Lawrence in there too more so because we kind of knew like what are you doing taking that style player with that pick but even Lawrence was like viewed by most big boards as a top 20 player looking back I think it was a little bit of a bad ranking by everyone because the pass rushing upside never really was there but I guess the whole thought was wow he can move like that at that weight he can become a pass rusher so it is what it is and maybe still can we're not ruling that out either but with the exception of maybe those three guys Nick there really weren't any picks that he made that were quote-unquote not BPA Right. Like you have got you have all these picks and Lorenzo Carter, Will Hernandez, even DeAndre Baker. They're all considered at the time BPA picks. So I'm not going to go crazy when, you know, Joe Shane, for example, in his first draft doesn't go BPA. What what everybody thinks he should go, because like you said, they're trying to fit a system. They're trying to fit a philosophy. And more importantly, they're trying to make sure they get guys who fit the character and that requires spending a lot of time with these guys in the pre-draft process, which is something they did with all of their picks. They spent a ton of time on Zoom and then going and sending Brandon Brown or other people in their front office positional coaches to some of these players pro day. And I saw someone tweet this and it made a lot of sense. We spoke about how Joe Shane was down at UNC's pro day because of Sam Howe. Turns out wasn't necessarily the case. <laughs> he was yeah, down right. there. Good point. Yeah, he was down there to see Azudu and McKeithen and other players. And they also signed Tom and Fox, a productive edge rusher, an undrafted free agency at a UNC, or maybe even Ty Chandler, who doesn't fit into the age model as much as we would probably like. I think he's a 23-year-old. And a lot of these guys that the Giants drafted were 21 other than DJ Davidson. And I don't think Beavers was 21 either, but those are later round picks. Yeah, exactly. Those are later on picks. And even with DJ Davidson in the mix, the Giants still had an average age of just 22, or a little over 22, even with him, like kind of weighing that up, <laughs> if you will, from because he's 25 years old. So I thought that was really notable. Obviously, we discussed a lot of that as well. So that's not anything too new. But next thing I want to go to here, Nick, is this. 
We've been talking for a while. <laughs> We've wanted it for so long, Nick. We wanted a draft class where the Giants finally just said, you know what? Let's do it. Let's invest in a lot of different offensive linemen that can do a lot of different things and potentially eventually develop into starters for us. Let's provide competition. Let's provide talent where we might normally not have it on the offensive line. And this was also after they had already signed so many different offensive linemen in free agency. Most teams that had that kind of free agency where they signed that much volume on the offensive line, including potentially two starters in Mark Lewinsky and John Feliciano. So in addition to those two starters and maybe even a third, right? And Max Garcia, he could potentially be the starter at left guards. They go out, they sign three potential starters on the offensive line, and then they add depth like Jamil Douglas and Gunna and Gano. And with that said, even after that, they draft three different offensive linemen in this class. They did what we said, man. They replenished. They built out depth. They put in competition. And you put this note in our notes, Nick. <laughs> they currently have 17 offensive linemen on the roster, according to our lads. As we know, teams typically carry eight or nine. So they clearly had a plan here. Let's put competition. Let's put talent. Let's breathe. Let's go into camp and have battles, legit battles, where the best players can stand out. And if worse comes to worse, somebody decides to retire. Two players decide to retire, let's say. And I doubt that's going to happen again. I don't think Brian Dable has, a, has, has plans to send these guys on laps and put, the, put them through this grueling training camp that literally nobody wants, but they tell the media they do. And, and I don't think it's going to happen, but let's say there's injuries. That could easily happen. Well, now they have backup plans in a lot of different ways. So what do you think about this, the Giants' decision to kind of follow through on it and finally build out depth and really pound, pound, pound the offensive line? I love it. It's music to my ears, Dan. And you did it at levels of the draft. You spent a third, you spent a top 10, and then you get a developmental guy at the back end of the fifth round. Going to have some sort of rapport with the Zudu, even though they didn't play necessarily next to each other all that often. There were both guards down there for UNC. But it's music to my ears, bro. I absolutely love it because how many times last season and just being a Giants fan over the last decade, have we complained and bitched and moaned about the offensive line and there not being enough depth and there not being enough developmental pieces in the pipeline? Well, Joe Shane heard all of those moans, all of those gripes, and he addressed this offensive line. And there's going to be some cuts where the Giants may release some good football players or right. you know, adequate football players. And they're probably going to be guys that they're going to try to slip into the practice squad. And then another team comes and swoops them up. But guess what? That is an Excellent problem to have relative <laughs> to issues that have been plaguing the Giants over the last decade. Dying to have that problem. I've been dying to have that problem on the Giants roster for my whole time, entire life. Too many offensive linemen. You got to sneak one through the practice squad. Maybe you trade one. Maybe they're the team that trades one for a future pick because they're just so loaded. And, you know, somebody likes one of these players on their team. I mean, I don't know if that will be the case, but at least now it's not. They have the opportunity to do that. And one other thing I think that's so interesting about this strategy of just really unloading assets between free agency and the draft on the offensive line is that they don't know for sure who is and who's not going to fit their system, right? They have an idea that Azudu can perfectly hit their fit their system and maybe even McKeith and, and maybe they really like how Max Garcia can fit. But now they're actually going to put it into play. These guys are going to get reps in camp against each other. These guys are going to get reps in the preseason and, you know, in, in games that, you know, they're live games. They may not be, they're not exactly like, I don't want to say, uh, you know, the same thing as regular season reps, but they're worth something. And you could see how these guys actually play within the system 
by doing so. So I'm really excited about this opportunity for the Giants to just ha- finally have competition on the offensive line and finally have a chance to really put together an offensive line that that can win football games. That's respectable. An offensive line that hopefully will be cohesive where these guys are working in conjunction with each other. And I'm, I'm excited about it. I really am. And I'm looking at Evan Neal. Obviously, he's going to start, you know, if everything goes well and he's healthy and all that crap. Right. Knock, knock on wood. But we're not even relying on a top 70 pick in Azudu to start. He's somebody that we're like, yeah, he could sit behind Max Garcia, Ben Bredesen, Shane Lemieux, and, and wait behind them. But if he's developed enough and they're confident enough in his pass protection because he has some flaws in pass protection to hold up, then that's excellent. And then you have this young player who's a building block on your offensive line moving forward, but he's not forced to start, which is something that I feel like happened to a lot of different players. I felt like Shane Lemieux was kind of a liability in pass protection, right? He was sort of forced to start because Will Hernandez, who was bad to begin with anyways, had COVID. So that put Shane Lemieux in there, and then Shane Lemieux kept that job. But how many times, Dan, back in 2020, were we like, oh, man, Shane Lemieux just got beat right off the jump, and Daniel Jones had to flee the pocket, totally blew up this drive. That happened a lot. Well, if Azudu struggles like that, if he is put into, put into conflict there, you have Max Garcia. You have Ben Bredesen. You have Shane Lemieux if he's kind of fixed that and he's healthy. So I just love the fact that the depth, bro, depth breeds competition. Giants have it now. And what if McKeithen stands out, right? He has a whole camp to stand out. They also have, you can throw him his name in the mix as well. Maybe you have him to step in. And how about what if these guys, one of them, because you know this is going to potentially be the case. And by the way, Nick, before I even say that, I want to say what a freaking point by you because I love that because when's the last time we can take a third rounder on the offensive line and not be like, we got to start this guy right away, right? Like this guy might start, like we have to start this guy. What do we have else? It's like you don't have to start these guys. You can let them develop. You can let them learn the system and get better within the system. So I think that's awesome that they actually have a third round pick. They don't have to fi- throw into the fire. But how about that? How about you take some of these interior offensive linemen and what if they feel like, you know what? One of these guys can be a center for us. I don't know who out of the guys they drafted and signed, but they may have plans to potentially to potentially have one of these guys compete with John Feliciano if Nick Gates obviously can't make that comeback. And who knows? He's also another guy who could potentially be in the mix if he makes that comeback from injury. But they have guys that they can really move around with the exception of right guard and right. We, we think there's three positions locked in, right? We think Neil's locked in at right tackle. I don't think there's even a chance he's not. We think Lowinski's locked in at right guard. I don't even think there's a chance he's not. And we think, obviously, Andrew Thomas is locked in a left tackle. But I'm not so sure John Feliciano is just locked into that center role. To me, he was – it was an, it was a solid pickup. Like, look, he knows the system. He worked with Bobby Johnson and Dable. It's fine. That gives you a leg up. But he wasn't a player I felt was not replaceable. Oh, absolutely. He's definitely replaceable. And the left guard spot is up for grabs. And Max Garcia can lose out at left guard, say, if Udu really balls out. And then it can become a competition between Max Garcia and Feliciano for center because he has some reps there as well. And just think about how this compares to last year. Last year at this exact same time, we had a left tackle who were like, well, he looked really good in the second half, but can he keep that up? We better hope because we have other options. We had a right tackle like uh, Parrot. He's going to win this job, right? And then we see, oh, no, Parrot lost reps. Oh, no, Parrot's now the backup there. What? Nate Solder? That's our right tackle. And then a right guard were like, uh, I guess we're just flipping Will Hernandez to the right side and saying that's all right, and yeah, he got COVID in 2020. I guess that's the only reason he was bad, not that he was actually awful in 2019 and before he got COVID in 2020. Whatever, he's locked in at right guard. Then it's like, 
Collapse mode at center. Collapse mode at left guard. Oh, no, Shane Lemieux hurt. There's nothing we have. Oh, no, Nick Gates got hurt. We have nothing. We have to trade for players that weren't on the roster, don't know the system, haven't been part of the program, and they're going to start day one. We better hope that works. Well, they don't have that problem now, the Giants. That's not a problem. No matter what happens this offseason, with the exception of a major injury to Andrew Thomas or Evan Neal, which knock on freaking wood, I'll be so fucking mad if that happens. With the exception of that, because I feel so confident with those two at tackle, I'm not really worried about our swing there. We have backup plan now in the interior, and that just makes me feel so good. Even, let's say, like, worst comes to us, another knock on wood, Glowinski gets hurt. I feel like there's options to compete and potentially emerge even for that position if worse comes to worse that happens. So it really just feels great right now to have this to be in this position on the offensive line. Not to beat the dead horse, Dan, but just to put it into a clear and concise perspective, the Giants, when Shane Lemieux went down, that was like a devastating injury. They were relying on a second-year guard who did not have great tape in 2020 that much. And then at right tackle, it was Nate Solder. They brought somebody who retired for a year or left football for a year because of COVID back, who wasn't good before he left football. And they were relying on that individual. Think about that and look at where we are at now and just say, thank you so much, Joe Shane, because that was just a terrible situation, a horrendous situation. And you were right. And you put it well, once Shane Lemieux went down, it was desperation mode. They traded BJ Hill for Billy Price overpay. They traded a fourth, which ended up being an early pick in the hundreds for Ben Bredesen. That has not returned value. It was absolute scramble. We need to fix this because they neglected to do so before that. And this is not the start to the Joe Shane era. The offensive line has been addressed. Hopefully they hit on some of these picks. And then we have this Cowboys-esque type of offensive line moving forward where they can run the football and they can pass protect. And whoever the quarterback is moving forward will have actual time to throw the football because that is not something Daniel Jones has been afforded his entire career here in New York. Yeah, you nailed it, Nick. And super exciting just to not be in scramble mode on the offensive line. I have a plan to see it executed. If there's one thing that I love the most about this Joe Shane draft, it was the influence and the importance that he put on the offensive line. And all pre-draft were like, uh-oh, does this guy not want to draft offensive line? And he kept talking about how in Buffalo they didn't have any first-rounders. Well, no, he goes out and he gets Evan Neal. And he tells us, look, I had two tackles. I was getting one of those tackles. Like, If the Giants didn't have that Bears pick, it wasn't going to be Kayvon Thibodeau at five. It was going to be Evan Neal. He wanted one of those two. And then he backs it up by doing what he said anyway, which was drafting guys in those, in those, you know, those middle rounds round three on day two. And then obviously with McKeith on, on day three to, to provide competition. And so it's there. It's great. Let me ask you this, Nick, as we spin off of the offensive line, cause I'm curious to get your take on this. We obviously had that exclusive inside zone blocking system under Pat Shermer. That was just really not diverse at all. In my mind, it was, it was not really what you want, but it was there. And it was somehow better than what we had next, which was the power gap lean from Garrett. That was more balanced. It wasn't all power gap, but it had a lean there. Do you have a better feel after this draft and looking at some of the film, early film of some of these guys with what kind of blocking system, the blocking scheme the Giants are going to run in 2022 under Brian Dable? I think it's going to be mixed, just like it was yeah. in Buffalo, just like it was at Alabama. Because also just for context purposes, when we say they run a lot of power gap, 
not a lot of teams run more power gap type of concepts, pulling type of concepts than they do zone. It's just right. more percentages. So I just want to put that in the context. Yep. So UNC, they pulled their guards a lot from the backside. They did a lot of that kind of stuff. They use skip pulls where you stay square to the line of scrimmage, and that gives you a better angle up to the second level. They use the typical type of pulls where you turn your shoulders and then you kick out the end man on the line of scrimmage, stuff we've talked about a lot. And I felt like Azudu did a really good job at that. His pad level was a little bit high. And I felt like McFadden was solid at that. He wasn't as fluid as Azudu operating in that. I feel like Azudu has really good body control when he is moving in that era. Both of those interior offensive linemen execute the pulls really well. So I think they're going to be able to have power gap concepts. We think about Buffalo last year, Dan. They initially ran a lot of zone and they struggled to run the football. And then they kind of went to a little bit more power gap, a little bit more Devin Singletary heavy rather than Zach Moss. And they found a little bit of a stride. They were still, I believe, I don't have the numbers in front of me, running more zone, but it was just more of an influence with power and gap than a typical team. And they had success. So I think that's going to be the approach. I think they're going to use the RPO where they do pull the backside guard and then throw. They're going to use RPO with zone where they read the end man on the line of scrimmage and then they react. I think it's going to be a mixture. I love it, Nick. And there you go. You got the breakdown from Nick. And I think you're right. It's going to be more of a mix. And and I, you know, I just feel like it's interesting because the guys they got this offseason on the offensive line, to me, they all do a little bit of different things and they all kind of profile a little differently. I don't really feel like uh, even the two UNZ guards are similar players. I don't feel like Neil is a similar. I don't think any of these guys, point I'm trying to make is I don't think any of these guys are suited for one specific scheme. Like you look at what the 49ers do, they try to get guys who fit that blocking system and that blocking scheme. And I don't think that's the case for the Giants, which is, which is interesting because it's going to give them a lot of options and guys who can do a lot of versatile and different things for them, depending on what kind of play they want to run in the run game and so good to see something interesting all right let's move forward here nick and talk a little bit about this i posted this chart right before day three and it was a chart that in the middle was it so it collected all of the consensus and all of the big boards so it's not the mock drafts it's like the experts and how they rank this class one two three hundred and then on the on the axis it was all the teams that stayed that had made draft picks that were essentially BPA, right? They were either drafted where they were ranked on the big board or before it. And then there was the Giants who had three picks, all three of their day two picks, Wandale Robinson, Cordell Flott, and Zudu, Joshua Zudu. All three on the left of the access, way away from the, from the best player available. So my question to you is this, Nick. What do you make of the giant strategy to go away from BPA in this draft when I'll call it quote unquote BPA, right? Because these are consensus big boards, but one key thing, and Jordan Reed did a great job of explaining this today. in one of his tweets, the ESPN's Jordan Reed, former podcast ho- uh, guest of ours that hasn't made it back since he made it to big, to big time on ESPN, but we're going to get him back at some point. Cause I still talk to Jordan from time to time. And he's like, look, these consensus big boards, one thing they don't account for. And one thing we can't account for as analysts are scheme, and culture fit. And these are things that don't, you know, that played a big role in my opinion, in the giants draft. So what are your thoughts on the giants going so far away from consensus? Because let me, let me put it to to you this way, Nick, I've had some people in my replies who have been like, look, I'm okay with the giants going a little bit away from BBA, BPA, right? Like taking guy a little early, but he's like, I feel like some of these picks were taken some, something like 50 to 60 picks ahead of where they were supposed to, Quote unquote, and I say this quote unquote, he didn't, but I'm using quotations, quote unquote, supposed to go, right? 
And so does that make it worse because they're taking bigger reaches instead of guys that might have been picked, or, you know, a little bit, but a little bit close to where they're picked, but not like 60 picks away. What are your thoughts on all that? I think the NFL views these players a lot different than the media. And that chart is based on big boards from big media personalities who really know what they're doing. But these scouts, they know the type of person and the type of player they want for these specific systems. And we can kind of go through each pick with Wondell Robinson. That's one that's kind of way off before a top. This is a top 50 pick who has historically bad arm length who's under 180 pounds, who is five foot eight. There are a lot of outliers there, but they have a specific plan for him. Now, would you label this a reach? Joe Shane and them did not believe it was. Did I think there were better players on the board? Yes, I did. But at the same time, I'm not them. They have met these guys. They are very thorough in their interview process, and they know the individuals that they want to bring into their culture and the kind of team that they want to build. Joshua Azudu, I mean, I didn't watch his tape before the Giants selected him, but I can definitely see the appeal. And I think he's going to fit really well here in New York, and it doesn't matter what kind of rushing scheme they want to implement because this is somebody who has a lot of technical warts and pass protection which we'll go over on a future podcast but he can move dude and he's very very strong at the point of attack and he has very very good hands and very very strong hands so is that really a reach there in in the third round just because a lot of people in the media didn't necessarily cover him because he didn't have that big hype i feel like a lot of it's just media hype media driven type of stuff so i don't really hate the Azudu pick. I I get that. I, I can see why people are a little against the Wandell Robinson pick, but if you really like the kid, if you like his toughness and you really do have a plan for him, don't risk another team going in there and scooping him up. And I guess that's the philosophy that Shane and Dable went with. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
Yeah, and think about it like this as far as all of these picks go, right? Some people might be like, oh, wow, these guys are like 60 picks ahead of where they're, quote, again, quote-unquote supposed to go. But one, as Nick mentioned and did so well in mentioning, when you scout these guys on tape, you don't at all know their personality. You don't at all know how smart they are, football smart they are, what their football IQ is, which is very important to a lot of these teams, to any team, right? You need a foot, you need these guys with high football IQ, actually. It's, it should be important to literally anybody. And you don't know a lot of these different things. And because that's the case, it's really hard to rank them with any kind of consistency in my mind. Like, yeah, they have all these opinions of what these guys are and what they where they should have been ranked. But again, that's not based on having all the factors in play. And the last thing I want to say about that is with a player like Wandell Robinson, who, again, I agree with you, Nick. He's not the receiver I would have taken there by any means. And he's not even the player overall I would have taken there, let's just say. But if the Giants viewed his skill set, right, what they view he can be, for their offense. Let's say that is just hypothetically, let's say what they view him as Nick is a Dion branch, Wes Welker, like slot guy who can not only win in space when you throw him screens, but develop into a really difficult route runner when you give him two way routes. And most players in the slot get two way routes. And I'm not saying Cooper cup. He's not at all the same athlete, but win in similar ways out of the slot that Cooper Cup uh, wins with these two-way routes that are hard to defend because he has traits in their mind that can develop him into that difficult route runner. So what they already are getting is this unbelievable asset after the catch. What they're going to eventually get in their minds is a receiver who can win in the slot at a higher level by creating separation more than some of these other prospects. Well, if they view him as that, Nick, they may not have viewed anyone else at the position at that point in time who was left on their board as anywhere near the level of what he can offer. Now there may be other things that they believe he can offer that I didn't go over. And that's perfectly fine. I wasn't trying to hit everything there. The point I'm trying to make is if they don't have any other prospect like that, that can do those things. Well, it doesn't matter like how I rank these guys like, Oh yeah, me and you would have probably definitely taken George Pickens over him. Right. We probably would have definitely taken a player like sky Moore over him, but sky Moore and him are not similar players in the giants eyes. Let's say then that doesn't mean like you have to understand they're looking for something very specific with Robinson and even Calvin Austin, who is a player you brought up like, oh, maybe they could have just got Calvin Austin a few rounds later. They may not view Calvin Austin as having the same skill set based on the film they watch as Robinson to eventually, you know, project and translate to do the things they want Robinson to do, if that makes any sense. Does that make sense to you, Nick? It makes a lot of sense. That's the the nature of the draft right there. Like I said, you and I, we don't have no access to these players and they have zoomed with Mondell Robinson several different times. They've spoken with him. They've met him. They know that he's the type of personality, the type of person that they want in their locker room. And also from a philosophical standpoint, Mondell Robinson, he he's very much alike Kadarius Tony in the fact that you get the football in their hands, they can make plays. That's a great thing to have, as Joe Shane essentially said. So when you look at this philosophically, you have a, an 11 personnel package with Kenny Galladay, your big time X. He can get one-on-one type of matchups that allow Daniel Jones to target him and you could trust your big receiver. And your other two receivers that you have out on the field with whomever is playing tight end is Wondell Robinson and Kadarius Tony. Depending on whatever the defense does pre to post snap, whoever has that one-on-one matchup, all it takes is quick pass, good decisive decision from Daniel Jones to find Wondell Robinson or Kadarius Tony, and they can make that one man miss, and then they can do so much damage with the football in their hands. And I think they're looking at this offense, and they're saying, we can do so much with the athletic ability that we are bringing in with Wondell Robinson. Again, I totally understand why people are like, this is a little bit of a reach. I, I get where they're coming from. 
but there's a plan here. There's a plan here and I'm interested and excited to see what that plan is because my first word when they selected Wandell Robinson that came to my mind was that is peculiar. I think peculiar kind of describes it pretty well. Yeah, I, I texted you and you said you, I should bring it up on podcast. We never did. The word I used was I was mystified. <laughs> I was that's <laughs> what I used to describe that pick. But again, it's not the pick I would have made. It's not the receiver I would have taken. It's not the overall player I would have taken. There were plenty of players, different positions I would have taken over him. But I'm not so sure looking at the class and what was left on the board at the time they took Wondell Robinson that there were any players who fit his who fit his profile. And that's the profile they were going for. What Robinson is going to offer you on the football field if he hits his ceiling that they obviously anyone they draft, they're hoping they hit their ceiling. If he hits his projection ceiling, what he's going to give you on the field. They did not. I I personally don't know if there's anyone else in this class. Calvin Austin, I guess, is the closest thing. But Austin, from what I've seen, very little of Austin compared to this guy. But from what I've seen, he's not as nearly as tough of a receiver. He may not have, uh, you know, he may he didn't have the volume. He didn't have the receiving volume that Wanda Robinson had. He didn't do it against the SEC guys. And maybe more importantly, he just doesn't offer them something that they like routes they know that are going to be pinnacle routes of this system. Things that they're going to call early and often for Daniel Jones and go to at key times on third downs and in the red zone. They may just feel that Wandell Robinson is going to give them a better chance to succeed on those plays than anyone else who was left on the board at receiver. And that leads me to the next thing as we go through this, because unless do you have anything else you want to touch on on kind of the going away from the consensus big board and kind of how the Giants quote unquote reached? No, I don't think Joe Shane gives a crap what a bunch of people in the media think about their big boards. Well, that's for sure. Um, We know that for sure. I agree with you on that. But speaking of this pick, let's just keep it on this. So I thought it was interesting. You, everyone who's listening to this podcast, not everyone. I know you have played fantasy football, Nick. And this is even more so the case in fantasy baseball with a position like closers because there's so few saves to go around. But this happens sometimes in fantasy football running backs. There's position runs. And this happens to tight end, actually, a decent amount in fantasy football and, and quarterback in one QB leagues. But then again, none of you should be playing in one QB leagues. If you are, that's not a good decision by you guys. But I'll say this. <laughs> As far as these runs go, guys will go off the board. There'll be a position run. And then you'll take a player who's maybe ranked way lower overall from a BPA, quote unquote, standpoint on your big board. But ultimately, that player you have to take because you need that position. And the Giants drafted into a run in this draft. There was the most absolutely insane run at any position I've ever seen in any draft class at wide receiver, starting from round one all the way through to the Vilas Jones pick, a player who we talked about earlier this <laughs> this draft season, Nick, with Laurie Fitzpatrick, and she's like, yeah, he's a sleeper. And I was looking him up. I'm like, damn, this guy has no draft buzz. Like, this guy is going to get drafted, and he's 25 years old. There's no shot this dude gets drafted until the fifth round. Well, he ends up going on day two. And so what are your thoughts on what the Giants did here, which was draft into a run? And do you think that maybe the run of wide receivers pushed up prospects like a prospect like Wondell Robinson on their draft board. And the last question I want to ask you about that, Nick, is so I, I want I want to get your take on both those two things. Did what do you think their of their decision to draft and do a run? And two, do you think it pushed up Robinson? And three, do you think there was any receiver who went before Robinson that the Giants would have taken before Robinson on day who went on day two that the Giants would have taken? So the only receiver that went on day yeah, two Watson, before Robinson right? was, yeah. was Christian Watson, and he goes at 34, and then the Giants trade back twice. So the Giants were comfortable enough to, to trade back twice to get Robinson. Now, I think the interesting thing is 
were they interested in Andrew Booth Jr., who went the pick before them? And then you're like, well, no, they traded back twice. Well, it's like, well, Minnesota traded back with Green Bay to allow Green Bay to jump up to get Christian Watson, and they still really wanted Andrew Booth. So maybe there was a consensus around the league that Andrew Booth was going to fall. Maybe the Giants did like Andrew Booth, and they were going to get him at 43, and that's what prompted Minnesota to trade up above them to select Andrew Booth at 42. I'm not really 100% certain. I think it's well within the range of possibilities. But if that were the case, I think they were still equally as high on Wandell Robinson. They might have thought that Wandell Robinson would have fallen, but maybe if not that, because of the wide receiver run that happened on day one, the most wide receivers ever drafted in the draft on day one. And then you see right after Wandell Robinson, John Mechie was the next pick. And then you had Tyquan Thornton shortly after that. You had George Pickens, Alec Pierce, and Sky Moore, three consecutive picks from 52 to 54. So just to kind of get to your question, I think once Booth was off the board, they were like, we are comfortable taking Wandell Robinson. He is our highest ranked guy. He is the guy that we have the best plan for. And if you look at all of those receivers I just went over, none of them match the profile right. of a Wandell Robinson. I love John Mechie, tough physical receiver. He doesn't have the type of explosiveness, nor does he really necessarily have the kind of evasive ability and elusiveness that a Wandell Robinson has. Tyquan Thornton, neither does he, but he is much faster, big a much bigger type of player. George Pickens, same. He's a much bigger type of player. Alec Pierce, same. Big slot type of guy. Sky Moore's more of a tough route technician who is just really good at all the nuances. But none of them have the Wandale Robinson get the football in his hands and watch him make Kadarius Tony type of moves. And that's why I was a little shocked because, again, we have Kadarius Tony already on the roster. I don't think this means that the Giants are going to get rid of Kadarius Tony. I just think it means that now you have to deal with two guys who have that similar type of skill set. And it's going to probably make a lot of defensive coordinators angry at the fact that either of those guys can make one guy miss and then take it very, very far. Yeah. And I think it's interesting as far as drafting into runs goes, because I think these boards are so different. I'm not so sure that, like you said, the giants drafted Robinson because the receivers were going or something like that. I think they found him as a unique prospect that they had rated as in their top four, 44 and they, and they took a chance to get him. Uh, but I will say this, as far as the position runs go and just kind of what you said, like, you know, would they have taken Andrew Booth? I know there's some like potentially reports or at least based on what Joe Shoon said that they were maybe interested in Booth. But doesn't it feel a little weird to you, Nick, considering their whole draft and the whole thing we've been going over is how they're trying to avoid avoid like guys who don't play and they want dependability, guys who have availability. And they don't want these crazy injury profiles. And Joe Sheen goes as far as saying, we won't take an injury prone guy. Well, we'd rather let him be a star somewhere else. He lets N'Kobe Dean fall all those rounds. It says something similar, you know, about the, I can't really say anything, but you know, there's a reason for him dropping. And so doesn't it seem weird for a guy like Booth who had like the patellar tendon injury? He has like, I, somebody posted and one of our uh, Monte Cristo on Twitter posted it. It's like, he has like seven injuries in the last two years and all lower body. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point that makes me lean towards the fact that maybe they weren't going to go Andrew Booth. That and they didn't really address cornerback outside Flott, who isn't really a boundary or outside type of guy. So I don't even know if they were as were as panicked to take a cornerback after Sauce Gardner and Derek Stingley Jr. went off the board just because those guys are kind of at an elite type of level in terms of being a prospect. Because you just addressed one cornerback with the kid from LSU who is a slot guy like I said I think they really have high hopes for a player like Aaron Robinson which is kind of shocking to be honest that they didn't necessarily look at any of these other guys who can play outside because we've talked a lot about how Wink Martindale prefers coverage over edge rushers but 
hey, that's the direction they went. I, I think that's a good point, though, because they're, a lot of these draft picks are much more dependable guys, which is something that Shane made a very, very strong point about in the pre-draft process. He wants dependability, and Booth coming off of an injury and has plenty of injuries in his past. So I think that's a good point. One thing I will say to the Booth rumor, though, and I and I heard this from a Ron Schneier source. That's my dad, which means <laughs> it has not been vetted. He most likely just got it from BBI, quote unquote, a guy who has a good track record, quote unquote. My dad is not keeping stats on these BBI sources. And if they have good track, they think he's just thinks this guy has a good track record. Maybe this guy has a good track record. I don't know. I haven't had the time to vet this. But according to his source, the Giants were really interested in Roger McCreary. And when McCreary came off the board, that's when they kind of made the decision to start moving back in the draft. And otherwise, they would have taken Roger McCreary. So take that for what you for what it's worth. Apparently, it's from a source that has a high hit rate. So who knows? <laughs> hey, that makes sense, though. Roger McCreary is excellent man coverage. And it doesn't appear that Joe Shane cares about arm length that much. Right. After good point with what with what they've done <laughs> since, right? With Juan Dale. So, yeah, I mean, look, you asked me. I, I'm curious because we both, me and you, going into this podcast, both felt receiver was a much bigger need than anyone was giving it credit for. And so that's why I was like, overall, like, you know, Robinson wasn't my receiver of choice, but I was happy at least they added a weapon early at the receiver position because, again, I do feel like with the way the NFL is going, part of why I want to draft receivers now is less so like I'm back on this whole outside in approach and more so like I want to get these guys on these four-year rookie contracts where if you hit, you're really beating the NFL cap. It's like a cheat code because you don't have to do what the Eagles did and trade for one and then pay him 50 million, you know, 57 million guaranteed in these 30 million cap hits and all these things that crush your salary cap and give you a tough time to kind of like build a roster out. If you have a high paid quarterback and now you have to have a high paid receiver, it's really difficult. Look at what it did to the chiefs. Look at what it did to the Titans. It made them, it forced them to trade these two players. Now they made other decisions that led to that. The chiefs invested heavily in the, on their defensive ends and on their offensive line. The Titans signed Derek Henry. In addition to Ryan Daniel, all of these are factors as well. They also signed Bud Dupree, but the fact of the matter is these guys weren't able, these teams weren't able to afford these, these big time receivers with these big time quarterback contracts. And so there is so much more value to me now in that taking receiver for that reason. So just another thing I like wanted to add about kind of why I like that Robinson pick. All right, Nick, next overall philosophy I wanted to get to and get your take on was we touched a little bit on it, but look, these tradebacks, they were a part of the plan. And, you know, we always talked about before the pre-draft process, we talked about, oh no, Brandon Bede and Joe Shane, they didn't really trade back much in Buffalo. They traded up. Well, what did Joe Shane prove to us in this draft? He proved to us that his past doings with working under Brandon Bean with the Bills aren't going to influence his new doings, right? He felt like the Bills roster was at a different point, Brandon Bean and Shane. They didn't want to trade back for reasons. They felt like they want to trade up for reasons. He knew, looking at this Giants roster, what Dave gave him, that he needed more picks. They needed more guys to fit their system. They needed more guys, their new systems, by the way, on both sides of the ball. They needed more guys to fit their culture, and he proved it by trading back and making use of that and understanding the value of picking up these extra picks via trade back, something they did really well in this draft. And I just want to say this before I ask you your take on that. Everybody could say, oh, well, guess what? Dave never really had a chance to trade back. You know, the one time he did, he did it, right? And that was one time in four years he traded back. Now, let me add the facts here. The facts are this. There was no chance in hell Dave was trading back if Devontae Smith was on the board. The Eagles traded up one pick out of the Giants to take Devontae Smith. I know, I don't give a 
F what anyone says. They were never trading back if Smith land, if Smith was on the board. They were taking Devontae Smith. And when he had five picks in 2018 and he needed to redo a roster that had collapsed under the old regime in 2017, he didn't trade a single pick back. He, he selected five players, dumped one of them on a quarterback who couldn't throw the, throw the ball 20 yards outside the hashes. Meanwhile, I see Sam Howell, who has a live NFL arm going in round five, which is wild to me when someone uses a four on Loletta. But he did took five players in that class, didn't trade back, and even told us after he wanted to trade up for Will Hernandez. He, they had to hold him back from trading back in round one. And he's like, I picked up the phone to trade up for Lorenzo Carter too. So that was not his M.O., but I'm really excited and it's really refreshing to have a, to have a GM that came in here, and that was his M.O. He told us this was my plan. He even as far Nick went as far as saying I had trades lined up that I was negotiating during our media presser from day one. When he was talking about the Thibodeau and Neil picks, he was texting and talking to general managers about who he could trade back with on day two. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. And I think you nailed it right there with the word refreshing. And Dane Belton, the safety from Iowa, and Michael McFadden from Indiana are on this roster right now because of those two trade downs with the Jets when they selected Brees Hall and with Atlanta when they went with Arnold Ebiketti, a player that I loved in the pre-draft process. Have fun playing with Lorenzo Carter down there in Georgia, my friend. Both of those players who can be eventual key contributors, possibly as early as year one, were collected because of Joe Shane trading back. And I think that's an important note. And it, like you said, man, refreshing. It's the only word that really comes in my mind. And it was his plan. And I wonder if part of the plan was because they got cave on Thibodeau. Cause you know, if let's say they got sauce Garner instead of cave on Thibodeau, would they have stayed there to take up a I don't know. It's possible. Cause that might've been just too good value to trade back. But based on the board that they had, I still feel like they might've traded back anyway. Cause I think his plan in this draft was, look, we need a lot of picks to, to we need to redo this whole roster. That was how that was given over to us. I don't like anything I see on this for the most part. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not hundred percent certain how much they liked Ebiketti. It seems like he'd be the type of guy that they would like because off the field and all of that, everything's all glowing. When you watch his tape, he's kind of running around everywhere. But it's hard to really say, but it didn't fall that way. And now the Giants have Belton and McFadden to thank for that. Also, Ebiketti is an older prospect, too. So maybe he was never he was never viewed as highly by the Giants, right? Like, what is coming in as? I just want to check it up. I know he was an older prospect. I just want to make sure it was like, yeah, he's he's over 23 and he's turning 24 at the end of next season. So maybe he wasn't on the radar as much. Who knows? But just something interesting to think about. I feel like they went into this thing with a plan to trade back, and that was Another key concept I loved about this draft. We may not have loved all the picks, Wanda Robinson, whatever it may be, though I'm, again, warming up to a lot of these, but the concepts, the philosophy, and the process. That's something we preach since the early days of Dave Gettleman. Me and Nick wanted a more sound process. I never at one point felt like Dave Gettleman was operating under a sound process, and that was my whole reasoning for wanting him gone so early because I just didn't feel like the process was there, even if the results might have been there. They weren't, but let's say there were some short-term results. It never felt good because the process wasn't there. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, it's what Joe Shane did in this first class. The process is there. Hopefully the results fall, but I'm happy just to see the process being there. All right, Nick, let's dive into something else here. I want to have a little fun with you real quick. Okay, Nick, would you rather Kayvon Thibodeau, Kadarius Toney, Aaron Robinson, and Daniel Bellinger, or your choice of Micah Parsons or Rashawn Slater? In both scenarios, you get Evan Neal. In both scenarios, we get Evan Neal. So that would just kind of somewhat maybe eliminate Rashad Slater. But let's even kind of 
Oh, no, take sorry, sorry. No, good point. Take out that take for that exact reason. Great point. Take that out. So you can. So with that said, Nick, I'm giving you another scenario here. You can play the scenario of. Rashawn Slater and Kayvon Thibodeau using the fifth overall pick that they would have got anyway on Thibodeau because you don't need a tackle there. But I think it goes both ways, right? Because you could either do Neil and Parsons or Thibodeau and Slater, right? So either way, your choice of that. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with the the surplus of players here and go with Kayvon Thibodeau, Kadarius Tony, Aaron Robinson, and, and Bellinger, I guess. I mean, process-wise, it makes sense, and I'm really high on Kayvon Thibodeau. It, it's kind of hard to weigh it because you're literally talking about two all-pro guys who are already established, and the, the red flags around Kadarius Tony make me kind of lean in that direction. But I think I'm going to stand pat and go with the four players who are hopefully building blocks that this – new regime is excited about, but I, I can also definitely be talked into the other, the other uh, choice here. It's closer than you think. And I think you did a good job of outlining it, Nick, because you know, unfortunately those two guys were pro bowlers and all pros, but again, like I said on a previous podcast, that's projection because in my opinion, I wouldn't have not put it past the giants to for sure have passed on Rashawn Slater because they were quote unquote happy with their own happy. They liked their offensive line more than we did. And then secondly, to not take Micah Parsons, because I think there was some weird off-field stuff that they bought into and didn't want to be a part of. So I'm not so sure that if they had just sat there, they wouldn't have just taken Gary Sony at, at their pick. To be completely honest with you, I wouldn't put have passed them or done like some kind of smaller trade back to like 12 or to like 14, 15, 16 and pick up like a third rounder or something like that. So again, it's closer than you think, but remember and keep in mind, you're not guaranteed to get those guys because that was the old regime and they made a lot of mistakes. All right, I want to talk about something else here, Nick, and pivot here. We're getting close to where I want to close this out with some trivia, but there are a few more overarching concepts I wanted to get to. And one of those is, what do you think this draft means for a player like Daniel Jones, the quarterback of the New York Giants right now, coming in as the starter, and someone who we are pretty locked into thinking, at least, is going to open the season as starter. One, the Giants didn't draft anyone in this class. They were rumored on day two to potentially be interested in drafting a player like Malik Willis. That turned out to not be the case. What I want to ask you about Jones is this. I agree. Me and you have discussed at length, Nick, that we both feel that he has put together some very disappointing, and in my opinion, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth because I know you at least feel it's disappointing, troubling tape from the standpoint of what we can evaluate independent of Yes, the Giants' offensive line was bad. Yes, the system was bad. Yes, there were injuries around him. But newsflash, a lot of other teams had at least one of those three things happen. And other newsflash, in our opinions and the opinions of most analysts, you can evaluate a quarterback independent of his cast based on things like his pre- to post-snap processing. How is he reading hot blitzes and hot reads? How is he uh, working from within the pocket? Is he manipulating the pocket well? How is he throwing from when he's forced to be outside the pocket? All of those factors that are independent of his cast and can just be evaluated and his development hasn't been there, but in my opinion, Nick, and I want to get your take on this. And if you agree with this or disagree with this, I think that this draft and Brian Dabes as the coach is setting up a system. That's going to perfectly fit his skill set. Why? Because look, the things he did so well at Duke up tempo spread zone, read RPO RPO, get the ball fast use, you know, in my opinion, he was better than advertised on some of the outside the number throws in the intermediate range. And I think that's carried over to the NFL, by the way, when he's been given time. 
and then mix in that touch pass over the top to hit you. But also spread the field out here. You know, don't always play these heavy personnel packages, 12, 12, 12 man personnel with two tight ends on the field. And I think I really do believe that this system with guys like Wandell Robinson and Azudu coming in is really going to be set up to perfectly fit the best of what we can get from Daniel Jones. Do you feel like that's the case? Absolutely. And that's something that I felt when they hired Brian Dable. And if anything, this draft substantiated that, right? Getting somebody like Wandale Robinson, who can do a lot of work in terms of getting the football in his hands, making yards after the catch. I think that's going to help Daniel Jones take a lot off his shoulders. And then obviously the three selections into the offensive line will certainly help Daniel Jones. So I love the fact that they're, they seem to be behind him. I don't necessarily think that that means they're going to extend him, but I think he has that realistic inside path to be the starter this year. I think it was also helped by the fact that this was a very, very bad quarterback draft. If this was last year's draft, the number five pick might have been spent on a Justin Fields or a player like that. So that's another thing I kind of want to take into this. But I think for this year, it's Daniel Jones's team. And then they're going to reassess and reevaluate moving forward after that. Yeah. And just want to talk a little bit about you, what your thoughts are from the schematic standpoint, because I think in a lot of ways, they're going to give Daniel Jones a lot more layups than he's ever gotten, or at least a lot more layups that he's gotten since the Pat Shermer era, where he was given some layups. I think it's going to be a system that has even more layups though, than that Pat Shermer system, which is known as quarterback friendly, a lot of half field stuff, hot reading high to low. But I think some of these plays are going to have design for Wandale Robinson, Darius, Tony as well, are just going to be pure layups for the quarterback, just easy ways to get the ball out of his hands. And more importantly than that, because Jones can get the ball out of his hands, more importantly, easy ways to avoid what's been Jones's log jam for his entire career. When he snaps the ball, he reads something pre-snap. It's not there post-snap. That was the solution he was going for. And he just locks in and stares at it for way too long before moving on to what could potentially be there next. And by that point, it's too late. I think what they're going to do is take away a lot of those opportunities and get in, and add in things that just are designed to just get the ball out into space quick, but also not be something that can be so easily taken away from the defense by their rotations post-snap or whatever they want to do post-snap. And even looking back at last year with some of the things they did with Tony Nick, Curious to get your take if this is if you think this will be the case, but there weren't even that many easy layups for Tony. They had the whip route that they use sometimes with Tony, which is great. It's a great route for Tony. It's a pretty easy layup some some of the time, depending on what the defense shows and what they adjust to. But they tried some of those end around stuffs occasionally, like one per game. It was like, but there weren't even that many easy layups for for a player like Tony. I think this offense is gonna have easy layups for Tony, easy layups for Wandell Robinson, and easy layups in the passing game for Saquon Barkley, too. It's going to be quick game. It's going to be a lot, not even just quick game in terms of dropping back. It's going to be a lot of just quick hitters, yes. a lot of little screens, a lot of fast threes, you know, when to the two receiver side, fast fours, to the four receiver side, I'm sure they're going to use some deception in that, you know, you send Kadarius Tony from the backfield as a fast four, which means, you know, like we explained in the, in the past, but we'll break it down. He's in the backfield on a three by one set. And then you send him towards the three by one set right before the snap. You snap the football and then you could throw it to him. You have three blockers in front of him and he could make men miss in space. Or you can also have the number two wide receiver from that set 
run a screen and you can kind of gas that you can act like you're throwing it to Tony, throw the screen underneath, kick some blockers out in the space, create a seal. And that guy's going to be Wandell Robinson. So everyone's focusing on Tony, but now you have a Wandell Robinson who you also have to account for. And that doesn't even necessarily talk about the defensive structure and how they're going to have to be forced to have one-on-ones against right. Wandell and against Kadarius Tony, against Kenny Galladay. And if you have a one-on-one with an advantageous matchup against a five foot nine, five foot ten cornerback against six foot four Kenny Galladay, you can oblige and you can take that and you can throw a 50-50 ball. I think there's just a lot more to consider. And it's not just because of the upgrade in personnel, it's the upgrade in play calling, man. Yeah. I mean, come on, Jason Garrett's play calling was so vanilla. It was so predictable. And we went over the film, we went over the all 22 so often dan and it got just so monotonous so damn monotonous and i don't expect <laughs> that I, I don't expect that with brian dable and i don't expect that with mike kafka's influence i think we're going to get a lot more modern type of concepts and heck we might even see some of that sean mcveigh influence if they decide to use wandell robinson in a similar light because again he comes from the liam cone offense there in kentucky who was a disciple of sean mcveigh and i'm sure brian dable he's a very very progressive type of coach who's going to steal concepts that worked in college and then use wandell robinson in that manner they have a specific plan i'm sure it's not going to be the exact thing that they did up there in buffalo or the exact thing kafka did in kansas city it's going to evolve and that's what i think is the best part about this coaching staff dan is there's going to be evolution here jason garrett was stuck in 2005 there was no evolution there really at all i don't believe that's going to be the case now yeah 100 percent. think about some things that i think are going to be key changes that we're going to get here for starters we're going to get a lot more of a spread out offense, which a oh, lot yeah. of, what'd you say? I said, oh yeah. Sorry. Oh yeah. Oh no, you're right. I love an oh yeah. Throw those OAS in whenever you can, because it is an oh yeah worthy statement because we haven't gotten that at all. We had so much of this just like old school. Jason, like you said, it was monotonous to watch because there was very little that changed with Jason Garrett's offense. And because not only was there very little that changed with Jason Garrett's offense, but it was not spread out and it wasn't, it didn't put the people, the players in a position where they could essentially, you know, where the giants can really maximize the speed. So I think we're going to get a lot more spread out personnel, which is going to help the offense. So just from the pure fact of spreading the defense out more, getting more speed on the field, operating from uh, giving Daniel Jones more easily accessible options. And in my opinion, improving the run game via lighter boxes, which I've always been a believer in spread out helps the run game. You're also going to get what Nick said in his breakdown, which is so important. There's a difference between quick concepts and quick hitting plays and quick game. What Jason Garrett developed and designed for Daniel Jones was a quick system, a quick game system. But guess what? When you design a quick game system, that's just basically spread the field out horizontally and hit in breaking, you know, routes that break back toward the quarterback. Defenses are going to sit on it. That's quick game. Quick hitting plays are some of the things you're going to see with Brian Dable. And that's and with Wando Robinson, with Saquon Barkley, with Kadarius Tony, with Sterling Shepard. That's going to be the ball hits the quarterback's hand and it's out of his hand. And it's right in the hands of that playmaker in space. And then let's see what happens. It's not rely on the quarterback to drop back, take a hitch, throw to the curl, and maybe the curl's there. Maybe it's not. Maybe you throw to a curl that was just totally guessed on, like we saw so many times. It gets hit in the air. Now it's an interception. Or sometimes, you know, it's just an incomplete. You're going to get the ball out into their hands really fast. The minute it hits Jones' hand, it's going to go right to that receiver. And that's what I mean by the layups. And I think that this Wandell Robinson pick further solidified for me that there's going to be a lot of layups in this offense. And what is that going to do to the defense? Think about it like that. A lot of the modern defense plays two high shells. So you have two safeties. They're trying to eliminate the explosive play. But if you're just doing these quick hitting plays around the line of scrimmage, it's going to drop a 
safety down into the box, right? And what is that going to set up? That's going to set up shot plays. That's going to set up explosive types of plays down the field where you can air it out, more advantageous matchups, one-on-one matchups, because the defense is accounting for the fact that you're nickel and diming them, picking up six yards here, seven yards here, maybe a 20-yard broken tackle by Kadarius Tony. So I think it's kind of like you, you've heard the old adage, you run to set up the pass, right? You're setting up the deep pass by using quick hitting passes, you know, because it's the defense is going to have to adjust to the fact that you keep just nickel and diming them. So that's just exactly. another great way to think about it. And that's a great way to kind of look at the Wondell Robinson pick because you added another player who is similar to Kadarius Tony. It's just another threat that's going to be used on these quick hitting, just get the football out of Daniel Jones's hands, get athletic offensive linemen into space. Azudu fits into that really yeah. well. And then just have them, cr- like how many times on Wondell Robinson's film, did you see him read his blocks excellently? Oh, well. So it's such an underrated aspect of his game. Exactly. So I think that's another aspect of it. And that is a much more modern way to play offense. It's just not something we saw whatsoever under Jason Garrett. And I don't want to make Jason Garrett a punching bag. He was a punching bag for years here in New York. And you know what? To some extent, rightfully so. He's not fit to be a modern offensive coordinator right now. And it was unfortunate that Daniel Jones wasted two years in his system. But now Daniel Jones, it's we said it was a make and break year last year. This is much more of a make or break year. You know, there's the economics. That's a whole nother story in terms of Daniel Jones. But he's in a good spot right now with an advanced offensive play caller and just a bunch of smart, modern football minds. I could talk offensive scheme and system with you forever, Nick. I think this is some of our best stuff. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll try to parse it there because there's still some other things I want to get to. But I will say this with regards to what you said. In addition to forcing the defense to adjust to how they're going to play you, these types of layups, they also have more upside, right? Because when you get the ball out quick in space and then allow blockers to get out ahead of a receiver like Robinson or Tony or Barkley who has the ball in their hands, it's so much different than when you're asking that receiver to break back toward the line of scrimmage like he would on a curl route like the Giants ran so much of or any of these kind of stick routes they ran so much of catch the ball, have to re-pivot, get his body and all his body weight and momentum back upfield and then try to make a play after the catch. When you just get it to him right away and then put a few lead blockers ahead of him, it gives you so much more of a chance to actually hit an explosive play in addition to a completion. So that also is an added bonus for me. Yeah, it's a huge bonus. I'm excited to see what this offense actually looks like in terms of the rushing attack. I think it's going to be multiple up there. I think there's going to be deep passing concepts, quick hitting passing concepts. I think they're going to actually keep the defense guessing. And that's a huge thing. And you know what? You think every offensive coordinator does it. Giant fans, no. It's not necessarily yeah. We have proof. We have damn proof. Anyone who <laughs> watches the film knows it. Anyone who listens to our podcast knows there's proof. Not every offensive coordinator does it. Even if he said he did, like, by the way, last offseason, he's like, I use motion. Uh, we just haven't been able to. No, no, dude. You didn't use motion. You didn't use it anywhere near these teams that do it well use it. So we'll move on from that, Nick, only because I want to save time for a much longer discussion on the offensive system. And I want to get to some other things now in between then. So let me ask you this as the next question, Nick. Giants spent a lot of time evaluating the running back position in the pre-draft process. They used a lot of top 30 visits. They went to pro days. Ultimately, they didn't take a court, they didn't take a running back in this class. Do you think that was probably just the case of the value never aligning? Or what do you think was the reason for that? More of a, it was it that or was it a nod toward, you know, we like what we have with Saquon Barkley and Matt Breida. And I forgot his name, but the kid they brought over from Buffalo. 
Antonio Williams. I'm honestly not 100% certain. I'm imagining they probably liked running backs. They brought enough in on top 30 visits to lead me to believe that if maybe James Cook fell in the draft a little bit farther and maybe if he was available at a certain point, they would have executed that instead of maybe selecting a Zudu. But I honestly, I don't know. I think value probably played into it. They were looking to maybe get a running back in the third round and not in the second round. And by that point, Brees Hall was gone. James Cook was gone. And some of the guys that they really valued did not fall and they were gone. So they ended up bringing in, I think, Josh Sean Corbin. He's a running back from Florida State. Florida State yeah. Yeah. I don't really know much about him. I remember because I watched Notre Dame. My dad's a Notre Dame fan. Him taking the like a 90 yard touchdown run. I put it up on Twitter earlier, but I'll have to do a more extensive film breakdown of him. I don't know exactly what he can offer, but it, I think they would have addressed it if the right value was there and they just never thought it was. Fair enough. I think you're right about that as well, by the way. All right, let's talk about a color, a couple other concepts here. This one, I'm going to give a hat tip to Giants fan in Charlotte because he put me onto this. What role do you think Joe Shane not having his scouts come into play, came into play in this class? So let's, let's first back that up and say this. When Shane was hired, he had to hit the ground running and yeah, he could take over some of what he did in Buffalo, but he didn't have his scouts in place. He, this, you know, these are Gettleman scouts right now who are working for the Giants, right? So a Gettleman scout's going to come to him and say, look, I have this kid out of Louisiana Tech who I freaking love. We got to get him in round four. We can't let him slip. Someone's going to take him if we don't take him. If we don't get him in round four, he'll never last our pick in round five. The Giants ended up going with all power five guys, all power five players in this class, and no one from any of those small schools. And I they think weren't all power five, though. I'm sorry? They weren't all power five. Daniel Bellinger and Darian oh, Bellinger, Beaver. correct. And and Beavers. Cincinnati's technically not a power five, so they're just a good okay. program. So for not yeah, Cincinnati is not a, and even San Diego State is a decent program too. I, I that's, that's yeah. fair though. They're not all power five picks, but most power five picks and no crazy like small school picks, right? No Fayetteville State. Do you think that any of this had to had to? Do you think that Shane not having his specific scouts in here played a role in this? Because I, I would imagine that if you're a general manager, and remember these guys make the final have the final say, they're the ones making the final picks, and you have a scout pounding the table for some kid that you have to take. He sees something that nobody else sees. You got to take this guy. I would imagine Joe Shane's probably more likely to listen to someone that he brought in, that he hires, that he trusts, that he knows has a can do a good job than someone that he has no clue about and just inherited from a former general manager i think that's a good point i don't know how much of that weighed into these specific okay. selections just because i think joe shane did his due diligence he watched the film he met with a lot of guys that he was interested with the fact that they brought in brandon brown from the philadelphia eagles i think he also added influence on this the assistant general manager for the new york giants i, I don't I'm sure that it plays somewhat of a role, but I don't know if they would have went in different directions because I think everybody that these scouts were pounding the tables on, if the general manager and the coaching staff felt like they checked out, they probably did a Zoom call with them or some sort of interview. But I can't necessarily give a, a full statement on that. I'm not really 100% certain. Okay, that's fair. I can agree with you on that. And just something interesting I thought was worth bringing up for sure. And I like your take on that. And I'll move it here and I'll position and pivot to this. As we close this out with one final talking point before we get to Giants draft trivia, which is going to be fun, and I want to get your takes on. This is uh, kind of been sparked by Dom, one of our one of our listeners who who brought this up to me. After taking Thibodeau and after taking Neil, two players who me and Nick are insanely high on both of, we both view them as true blue chip players. The Giants now have double the blue chips we had going into this class, which is cool. 
just fun to think about. We finally have some guys, some building blocks that are legit NFL blue chip talent type talent. But more importantly, what he said was we have them at the premium positions that are really hard to find. Even corner. Think about this. He didn't talk about this, but I'm going to pose this to you, Nick. Even corner. I tweeted out something just before the draft on this about the cornerback position. You look at a lot of these top 10 corners that have been taken since 2010. There's like an insane hit rate. I put it out on Twitter. It's like almost 70%. And a lot of these guys are like all pro beasts. Edge, crickets, crickets. <laughs> Most of these classes don't have a good edge. It's really hard to find a blue chip edge. Tackle, crickets, crickets, crickets. The same thing. We got in this class two positions that are not only premium, but super hard to find. And in my opinion, aren't a premium or aren't a blue chip in every, there isn't even a blue chip in every single class at edge. And some of these classes don't even have blue chip tackles. I've seen a class like that. I can't remember. It's been a really nice run for tackles lately, but like for a while, there weren't even blue chip, ta- not for a while, but there were some classes without them. So what kind of value do you put on that moving forward for our roster, for our chances of becoming a winning team again, that we now have these two really hard to find positions and blue chip guys there? Oh, I think it's excellent for the New York Giants. We mean, we talk for how long have we talked about the Giants needing an edge and needing a star tackle? And they landed on Andrew Thomas in 2020. That's excellent, right? But opposite of him, we've been looking for 10 years to find a solid right tackle. Well, now you got the guy. You got Evan Neal from Alabama. In terms of edge, we've been looking for edges since OCU Minora and Justin Tuck and JPP left. I mean, they signed Olivier Vernon. That was around the same time. That was the same time they had JPP. He didn't necessarily hit here in New York. And then we've just been complaining. We need edge. We need edge. We need, <laughs> need edge. They get Aziz Ojolari. Is Aziz Ojolari blue chip? I would say no. Does he have a lot of traits that can be developed? And can he be a, an above average starter for your team? Yes. Can he build upon that? Absolutely. So you'll love that. But Kayvon Thibodeau is a different type of animal. I think it's just an excellent reality that the Giants are in right now. And it's not one that we're used to. It's been years <laughs> since the Giants have had that. And it's a great point by Dom. It is a great point by Dom. And it's really, you know, we went into this offseason not as hopeful, not, you know, not including the draft, just that the state of the roster that was left by the former regime. But as you look at it now, with the obviously everybody knows you need a quarterback to win. But as you look at it now, it's really hard to find bookend tackles like the Giants potentially have right now with Thomas and Neal. It's really hard to find an elite edge like the Giants potentially have with Thibodeau. In my opinion, it's really hard to find what Aziz will become while playing with Thibodeau on the other side of him. I think he's going to become one of the better edge twos in the class. I think Thibodeau is going to really help him. And I really think McKinney can be one of the better deep half safeties in the NFL. They have five pieces that I feel really strongly about at really important positions. Four in the trenches. And then you could even throw Leonard Williams if you wanted this. I won't because he's going to be, it, it is what it is with Leonard Williams. I don't want to get into that now, but let's just say it's those five for now. They're at really good spots, in my opinion, for what ends up being, you know, for what you can think of as what helps you win football games. Four in the trenches, that's really good for me. And who's the oldest of those blue chip guys that you just mentioned? Wow, that's a great point. I, right? I, none They're of young. them are over 25. Exactly. They're all so young. It's an excellent start to the Joe Shane era after the Giants haven't drafted all that well dating back to Jerry Reese. I mean, so like when you look at it like that, and now we're like first year, just got done with our first draft, and you have blue two blue chips on your offensive line at tackle, a blue chip edge, I would say a blue chip safety, and then you even have high upside guys like Aaron Robinson who could possibly develop into that. I think that's maybe a little rich at this point, but it wouldn't be the most ridiculous thing if that does happen. So I think the Giants are in a good position now. Are they ready to compete in year one of this rebuild? 
Maybe not, but it's not the craziest thing either. Like I'm much more optimistic right now than I was last season. And we even thought last season after they spent all that money, there could be a chance that they could compete. But now I'm optimistic, not about them competing year one, but about the future of this right. team They're on the right direction right now. And I won't say the same just because I fell for the trap and I was overly optimistic last offseason. I thought they were going to win a lot of games. But I will say this feels like more of a real optimism because this is not an optimism that's rooted in in a lack of realistic expectations for what could be right away. That last, the, the last year's optimism was rooted in immediacy. I wanted, I thought immediately yeah. they can be good. I'm not thinking of it like that. Now I'm thinking they could be good down the line. It was a bandaid type of regime. It was, we're going to put a bandaid here. We're going to bandaid here. We're going to compete bandaid here, bandaid here. We're going to compete. Joe Shane is a straight up tourniquet. It's like, Nope, we're stopping this bleeding. Yep. Okay. And we are going to invest the right way and build for the future. And, and he did that while also giving a little bit of hope in the fact that they can compete because you bring in and surround yourself with smart people and a smart staff. And they have, I guess you could say an experienced quarterback and an experienced running back who are still under contract here in New York. I, I'm just, uh, I'm pumped about the direction of the team right now. I think, I think the giants are in good hands for the first time in a while. I love that. Joe, Joe, Joe Shane is a tourniquet on the, on the, on this, on the bleeding that was from the former regime. That, that's funny. I like that, Nick. I don't know. Did you come up with that on the spot? I did. Yes. All right. Well, all I could say to that is just reflect on what Nick just said. That's all. I got. <laughs> great, dude. That was reflect great. On what Nick just said. Let's end this thing now with a little bit of draft trivia. Okay, Nick, I'm curious yeah. to see if you can get any of these right. I'm going to start with the easy one because only one of these is easy, but you know what? Maybe you're better than, I expect, or that anyone should be. So uh, this draft, Daniel Ballinger was the first tight end the Giants drafted since Evan Ingram, and he was also the first true tight end, not not including a hybrid type, since Jarrell Adams, who was a sixth-round pick in 2016. Do you know who was the, t who was the true wide tight end who was drafted before that and what year he was drafted? Yeah, so this was the only question that I ended up seeing. I'm just going to full disclosure on this. I saw it on the dock, and my initial... Thought but he didn't look at just to be clear, he didn't go. Yeah, to no, I, I didn't look anything up. My initial thought was shocky, and then I kind of snapped too. And I was like, duh, it has to be Kevin Boss. But even since then, because I did see and I've been stewing on it this entire yeah. podcast, I don't know if you include the JPP of tight ends. In yes, of course, you that's who it is. Okay. AP Robinson 2012, the JPP of tight ends, baby. But it took me a while to yeah. get to that because I, I literally was like, oh, it's shocky. And then I was like, no, you idiot. It's Kevin Boss. And then throughout this podcast, just <laughs> we're talking about different things. I'm like, wait, the JPP, is he a true Y? I, I guess he was. Yeah, he was like 6'5", <laughs> 250. Yeah, I know. I just, I mean, he wasn't, you know, all that great, but that's not. Yeah, is he a true Y? <laughs> the question is, is he a true anything? He didn't play any, his no, no role whatsoever for the Giants. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Now, so I did see that. I don't know these other questions. Though. Okay. The next one is. This draft class was the first time the Giants used two picks in the top 75 overall on the offensive line since. Two picks in the top seven. So I'm going to 2015. You got to take out 2020. Yeah, I'm taking out 2020 because Matt Parrott was 99. 2015, they, they went with Eric Flowers, but I don't think they addressed offensive line until like late and it was Bobby freaking Hart in like the sixth round or something like that. Yes. Um, so I, I honestly, I, I don't know. So I'm trying to think of like the tackles that they've drafted high in the past. I know 1999, they went with Luke Pettigrew. I don't know if they went with 
somebody else. They went with Chris Snee in 2004. I don't think they had another tackle. Or to be fair, this is a really unfair question considering I'm not. You were barely born for this. Um, okay. <laughs> so it's probably not even 90. I was just going to say 99 just okay. off the off chance they drafted some guy that I didn't know. I'll Outside. give you the year. I'll give you the answer. But let me first start by saying this. Oh, wait, was, hold on. Was oh, it? you might have this. Okay, so I know because I looked I looked this up a while ago or like a week ago when I was talking or actually it was during the draft when they selected Evan Neal. I tweeted out top tackles that they drafted. And I know they went with two offensive linemen early in 1988, one of them being Jumbo Elliott. So it wasn't there was actually a year before that. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're and so it goes. All right. Well, let me let me let me do the answer. This is hard to get. Okay. Let me first start by saying this, though, before I do the answer. In addition to this, the Giants have actually only taken three offensive linemen or more in a draft, with the exception of 2020 when they did it, when they took when they did when they ended up taking Lemieux. This was also the most recent draft in between them where they took three or more tackles. That's how little they've used. That's how rarely they've gone this route of using a lot of these picks on tackles. So this was the 1989 draft where they took Brian Williams at center at number 18 overall out of Minnesota, and he's the father of? Brian Williams is the father. Oh, we went over this. Um, Come on. He's one of my favorite players in the NFL for no good reason. Oh, okay. Yeah, Max. <laughs> I Max Williams, the father of Max Williams. Get me that blocking tight end. You know what? Send him to Darius Slayton. They, they never feel like they have too many receivers over there in Arizona. Give, give, come on. You drafted freaking Trey McBride. You re-signed Ertz. Give us Max. You don't, you're not going to use him. Give him to us. That's my plea. That's my plea to uh general manager over there in Arizona. And, and by the way, I wasn't even alive in 89. <laughs> no. Oh, you weren't? Oh, wow. No, no. I thought you were for some reason. But anyway... Number 18, they took Brian Williams, and then they came back at number 64, and they took Bob Cratch, a guard out of Iowa. And then finally, for their third offensive lineman, they took tackle Dave Pop out of Illinois at pick 175 overall. But besides 2020, 1989, and this draft class, the Giants have never used three or more obviously dating back before that. In, in between then, from 1990 until 2020, that is a 30-draft stretch. They did not draft three or more offensive linemen at any point. How crazy is that? It is crazy. Yeah. And I mean, they didn't, didn't do a lot of investment, but I do remember, and it's funny you said that was 89, right? In 88, yeah. they draft some, they drafted somebody who was a lineman and then they drafted Jumbo Elliott. So they were yeah, really they investing drafted. in the offensive line then. Yeah, you're right. Look, they, 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 they love the offensive line back then. They drafted Eric Moore, the guard out of Indiana at number 10 overall. And then, like you said, they came back and took Jumbo Elliott at 36 and then took another guard at 145. So they used to invest in the offensive line, but they had a 30 draft stretch where they didn't spend more uh, three picks or more on an offensive lineman. It's crazy. Hog mollies. Yeah. <laughs> Despite some preach, some preaching hog molly. All right. Let me ask. Let me finish this with an impossible one potentially to get. This was the first time the giants had two picks in the top seven overall since. Oh, bro. I'm, I'm not gonna know that. <laughs> it's a trick question. They've never had anywhere close. The closest I could come to finding from a pure draft capital standpoint was 2019 when they had six and 17. And if you then if you go really further back until like the days of when there was like 16 NFL teams total in 1951, they had one and 13. They drafted Kyle Rote at one overall, who apparently played N, which I don't even know what that is, but I think it's like a wing back because his stats are wild. He had like rushing yards, receiving yards, passing TDs. And then at 13 overall, they took Jim Spavital, and he was listed as B, 
which I don't know. I'm just assuming means boundary. But then he also had defensive stats where he had four interceptions in his career. So he's probably playing some safety. And Rote was out of M- MSU, by the way, there. And and this dude, Spavital, was out of Oklahoma State. Can you imagine, Nick, back in 1951, you're some Southern boy from Oklahoma or, or, or Texas. Right? I think that's where Southern Method is. I don't really know. And they're asking you to trek all the way across country to New York. And you're going in 1951 to New York. Can you imagine what that was like? It's probably awesome, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we'll leave SMUs in Texas, too. Okay. And then they also had picks in four uh, in 1949 that were in this range. But I think, again, we're going back too far because I was looking at that draft class in 1949, and the Giants' fifth-round pick, who was named DJ Cheek, was 46 overall. That was in the fifth round. So just to give you an idea of how the draft has changed. Yeah, the draft has changed quite a bit. A lot has changed. And I think uh, Ed Marinetto made that point right before the Giants picked Wandell Robinson when he went up on stage and talked for like five minutes. Yeah. You know, coach the Blue Mountains. I was hoping he was going to mention Blue Mountain State. Have you seen Blue Mountain State, Dan? No, I haven't. Oh, bro, that is a knock on you, bro. You would love Blue Mountain State. Just dumb, yeah. stupid, mindless kind of humor. And he's like the the old coach who kind of puts up with it. And he, he's an excellent personality in the show. I, I, I love that show back in like 2010. I got to check it out. I feel like I've heard of it, but for some reason, I never I never actually went for it. So I got to give that a shot. But anyway, that's all we have for today on the Big Blue Banter Podcast. Like I said, keep it locked and loaded this week. We're not done. The draft is over, but that doesn't mean we are. We got a lot of draft to recap. We got some guests coming on to talk draft. We got a special guest coming on. We're going to go with some individual pods, some deeper dives on these picks from the film. We're going to review the NFC East. We're going to review the NFL draft. A lot coming, so keep it locked and loaded. Thank you so much for tuning in with us through draft and through everything. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you soon.